Hi everyone, it's Caitlin Luna, host of Speaking of Psychology. This episode was recorded live during APA 2019, our annual convention that was held in Chicago this year. I was away on maternity leave during that time, so my colleague Dr. Lynn Bufka was a guest host. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a podcast from the American Psychological Association. I'm Dr. Lynn Bufka, and I'm guest hosting this podcast from APA 2019 here in Chicago. Joining us today is Dr. Kalyani Gopal, a clinical psychologist and the executive director of the organization SAFE, Sexual Trafficking Awareness, Freedom and Empowerment. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for having me here. I was hoping you could start by telling me a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this area of work. Sure. Um, I've been in the field for about 30 years now. And I first got in the field of human trafficking probably when I was 17 or 18 without knowing that I was working as victims of human trafficking. Oh, wow. At this time, I was in India. I was a bachelor's degree student. And um, I, I was doing my uh, bachelor's degree paper on research paper on uh, women in jails, so young women in jails. So I went to this jail, which is called the Tihar Jail. It's in New Delhi, India. And I went to the jail, and I was collecting data, and the girls were disappearing. So I was the same age as those girls. I was 18, 17, 18 myself, and so were the girls. They were all locked up. There's like 20 girls, 25 girls in a room, all locked up in that room. And then they were disappearing in the course of the night. So and I used to come back to collect data from the very same girl. Because you know, in research, you're collecting the data from the same group of people. So I go back to collect data, and some of them are not there. And years, and then when I left there, uh, eight months later, uh, they actually had me sign a paper saying that I would not disclose what I'd found in the jail. So in India, as in any country for that matter, um, girls are used by dignitaries who come to the, ch to the capital city of that country. It could be here, it could be Serbia, it could be anywhere in the world, Washington, D.C five miles away from the Capitol building is what they call the, the track, the mm. kiddie track. Literally five miles from the Capitol building, right? And in that kiddie track, you have young girls being trafficked. So it happens across the world. And I, at that time, I was so young myself, I'm so innocent at that time, right. I didn't know. So I guess that's really where I started working with victims of trafficking without knowing myself I was doing that. And then years later, when I came to this country, um, I was doing my doctorate in uh, Vanderbilt University, and then a little girl, a seven-year-old girl, sat on my lap, and she said, my dad's touching me. And I didn't know what that was. That, that was my segue into the field of human trafficking, into the field of sexual abuse, child mm -hmm. sexual abuse. I actually came to this country to learn more about intellectual and cognitive neuropsych wow. work. But I ended up doing child sexual abuse and forensic work, but these kids were talking to me. So then, because these kids were communicating with me and they wouldn't talk to other people, my professors and my supervisors said, okay, you know, why don't you talk to these kids? And I did. And then those children then started having to testify in court. So then I went with them to testify and the rest, like they say, is history. Okay. Um, and then I started working with foster kids because a lot of the kids who are sexually abused end up in foster care. Mm -hmm. And then years, about 15, 20 years later ago, no, 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, I had a family of four children in Gary, Indiana, 
and they were between seven years old and the youngest was two, two, three years old and they were being asked to perform tricks with each other. So in Gary, one of the houses, it had like black windows. Um, uh, the windows were, the, there were black paper put mm -hmm. on the windows and inside the stage like this, a little stage, chairs just like that and people were paying $10 a piece to come in to watch these kids do wow. tricks, what they call tricks on each other. So the parents were trafficking their own children. Oh and at gosh. that time, we didn't call it trafficking. 30 years ago, you know, it's child sexual abuse. No one said it was human trafficking, right? So what we did was uh, we called it child sexual abuse. We, I went to court the family for the first time in the history. The, the father got 56 years in jail. They had a life sentence, mother and father. Uh, they both got life sentences, basically. And that was my very first case. Wow. Um, and from then on, I started getting cases on child sexual abuse from across the country, testifying mm -hmm. wherever, you know, what was mm -hmm. going on. A lot of them high-profile cases involving people who were like brothers of judges and wow. um, politicians, sisters, so forth. So I got involved with all of that. And then um, about 10, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago maybe, I had a young girl call me from Chicago. And I was at this time working in Indiana. And she called me and she said, Doc, come pick me up. And I was like, I'm not gonna come pick you up. This is a foster child. I said, I'm not gonna come pick you up. You know, go home. What are you doing at nine o'clock at night outside? You get back home. What I didn't know is that she was probably being trafficked. I right. had no clue. Until today, that weighs on my mind. As a child, I could not protect. Mm. So from then on, I got really interested in the field of human trafficking because I realized these teenagers were disappearing. And what's really troubling is foster parents, some foster parents, not all, but some foster parents literally will ask for teenage children and teenage girls because I really get along well with the girls. You know, I'm really good with girls. I work really well with them. Give me the teenagers, they're hard to place. They're really hard to place. Yeah. They're hard to place kids, we'll take care of them. Of course, these kids are running away, or we think they're running away, but now I realize they're probably being trafficked. Wow. So having, having done all this, these years of child sexual abuse, I was now moving into the field of human trafficking. So at this point, I do literally 20% to 30% of my clinical work is on human trafficking work, well, anti-human trafficking work. Can you help listeners understand what human trafficking is? Because you, you're talking a lot about sex trafficking, right. but trafficking can involve labor as Absolutely. well. So can you help people understand sort of the range of what human trafficking encompasses? I'm really glad you asked me that, because sex trafficking is like the sexy thing that people right. talk about, right? No pun intended. But so there's two types of trafficking, fundamentally. There's labor trafficking and there's sex trafficking. Labor trafficking is larger worldwide than sex trafficking. So labor trafficking is a $150 billion industry, right? Human trafficking is about 20% of all trafficking, sex trafficking that is, it's 20% of all trafficking. Labor trafficking involves organ harvesting. So I was in India training the people, the NGOs in the Miramar, the Myanmar, uh, Nepal, India border. There's a lot of unrest there. There's a lot of refugees out there. So I was working out there with the NGOs and the magistrates and the IOM, the, the UN people there. And I was training them on how do you identify and work with victims of traffic. Because we are psychologists, that's what we do. We train people to interview other people and to interact and to establish that rapport. 
And so when I was working with them, one of the things that comes up was organ harvesting, child brides, huge, huge issue of child brides, organ harvesting, um, sex tourism is very big. So especially Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, there's a massive sex tourism. We have brides going from China to Vietnam. We have brides coming from Nepal to India, Russia to India. So these are child brides that are being trafficked. That's very, very big. Even in this country, we have child brides and there's laws. Every state doesn't have laws against child brides, just so you know. Some of the states allow child brides. So keep that in mind when you think about human trafficking. Another big aspect of human trafficking is the mining industry. So for example, in DRC, which is DR Congo, mm -hmm. um, in Africa, they have a region called Kivu, and we were working with some of the folks out there. And what happens is there's, there's tins, they, they, mine, they have mining with tins, tin mining. Mm -hmm. And the children and the women are trafficked for tin mining over there. So it's a very big industry all over the world. We have child soldiers in Kenya. So these kids are about three, four years old when these boys are then taken into human trafficking. They are child soldiers and they're made to fight for ISIS. They're, they're taken all over the world. So think of the Boko Haram children, the girls who were kidnapped, everyone knows about that. They were also trafficked, they're sexually trafficked, but they're also labor trafficked. Labor trafficking is huge between Nigeria and Italy. So Italy is a destination point, it's a gateway into Europe and they go from Libya and Nigeria. They go from Nigeria to Libya, Libya to Italy. So we are trying to break that chain. It's a supply demand chain. So the US is a destination country for sex trafficking. The Middle East is a destination country for labor trafficking. Europe is a destination continent for sex and labor trafficking. So there's several different forms of it. Sex tourism, if you ever travel to the middle, to the southeastern countries, sex tourism is very big and the sex extortion is very good, very big there. So tourists go from here, they think, okay, you know what, my wife's not here, my, my spouse, my girlfriend, whatever, is not there. And what they do, pictures are taken and there's extortion that takes place using the children. So there's a lot of pedophilia that goes on. Wow. It's a, it's a huge problem. I was researching huge, this issue. Huge. I was overwhelmed by yes. how big it is. And it yes. happens not only across borders, but within countries as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And it was important. I learned something important is that distinct from smuggling. Yes. Human smuggling is trying to get people who, to into a country, yes. not necessarily for labor or sex purposes. Absolutely. This is really about getting people into the country to have them being used and in, in really kept Absolutely. to do things that they don't want to be doing in a Absolutely. way that we would consider Absolutely. violation of their human rights. That's very well said because human smuggling involves money at the reception, at the receiving end. So okay. basically, you pay someone fully aware of what's happening. You talk about informed consent all the time, right? They are consenting to be smuggled across borders. Human trafficking doesn't involve any consent. It involves deception. So it's fraud, coercion, deception. Okay. You're not paying money to be trafficked. Right. 
the trafficker gets paid to traffic you. Right. It's a whole different dynamic. It, it, I can only imagine, and I want to know more about what's the psychological impact of having been trafficked. What what happens to the person? It is massive. It is total. It is. It, and I tell people, we talk about domestic violence, right? And we talk about human trafficking. And people often think, well, I have a domestic violence shelter. Why can't I keep kids or women who are trafficked in that shelter? You can't. Because a domestic violence victim can walk out. Mm. A human trafficking victim should not be allowed to walk out because when they walk out, they go to the trafficker. Immediately, the trafficker is waiting outside and they're terrified, terrified of speaking because even though you and I are talking, if we have a victim of human trafficking in front of us, it's just not three of us. Her trafficker's in the room with her. He's psychologically right there. So he, it's a manipulation. It's a dehumanization of an individual with, it's almost like an addictive uh, force. So what they do, they'll give you little bits of love. Mm. Teeny meeny, you know, you're great, you're beautiful, you're lovely. Little bit of love and then massive doses of punishment. You know, there's pain through the cigarette butts being put on them. They're made to lay naked on a, on a table. And so as an example to everybody else who spoke or snitched, you know, basically, they beat them up. So if you don't bring X number of dollars home to the trafficker that day, you're on serious punishment. There's no food, there's no water, there's no drink. There's nothing wow. for you. Yeah. Wow. It's a very seriously dehumanization. So your entire identity is what the trafficker tells you you are. If mm -hmm. the trafficker says you're a woman, you're a woman. If the trafficker says you're not, it's that bad. Mm -hmm. It's that severe. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a complete manipulation and control of the human mind. And how does a person ever get out of that? What, what is it that they can do to try to, to escape that manipulation? Is there something? There's so much now. As psychologists, we have so much to offer. And the tragedy in this field, and I say it's a tragedy because there's not enough psychologists who are in, involved because you always think of it as a social justice issue, a social work issue. What am I doing with community stuff, you know? That, that kind of mentality. We tend to be more clinically in our office, in a, in a clinic, safe, like a comfort zone being in your office. But really, we need to get out there in the community because that's really where human trafficking is happening. That's where our patients are. Our patients are in the community. They're living every day in the community. They're not living in our office, right? So we need to be out there. And so the ways to treat victims of human trafficking, what I do, I had to modify existing treatment to work with trauma victims of human trafficking. Because you're working with an addictive or an addicted human being. Mm -hmm. You're also working with a human being who doesn't feel she's human anymore. Mm -hmm. Because the trafficker is who, she, I, who gives her her identity. So when you have that third person in the room, you first have to separate that literally, that psychological separation between the trafficker and her, mm -hmm. like two separate entities. Mm -hmm. That's the first stage. And the next stage then is then you try to tell this person, who are you? Mm -hmm. Then you have to build, you have to build that person up, not only as a human being, but you have to build them up in terms of what do I want? What do I like? Who am I? Who was I before? I became a victim of trafficking. Mm -hmm. I became a, my PIMS girl. You know, they have, they, have, they identify themselves with very, a lot of street language, which I won't use, but they have very specific language how they identify themselves. They have a hierarchy. It's like a harem. So each woman has a role in that harem. 
And then I do a lot of trauma work with rapid resolution therapy. I've modified some of the treatments because I do Eastern as well as Western. Because it's not only a psychological issue, it's a spiritual emotion. It's, it's just a multifaceted demeaning of a person. I've never seen a human being so non-human as I've seen in victims of trafficking. Wow. It is, they will sit in my office and I worked with severe sexual abuse, so don't get me wrong, I worked with very, very severe sexual abuse cases, which, you know, the fragments of personalities too. And so they will sit here, they will put their legs up there, and they will just hold themselves like this for hours. And you cannot speak to them because in their heads, that trafficker is looking right at them. And they're not hallucinating. That person's in their head, you know, literally inside the head. So you're working with an individual who's so severely traumatized you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's just a tragedy. It is. And so when you have to pull them out, the biggest thing, what I use, I use a lot of visual, tactile, and very hands-on with them. Uh, you know, usually with trauma patients, you say, don't touch them, don't go near them. With them, they literally need you to hold them. Hmm. You literally have to hold them. You know, like they're like children. Hmm. And once they trust you, initially they won't talk, of course, but once they trust you, you can't stop them. It's like a dam just breaks through and they cry and cry and cry. And they'll talk and talk and talk. A session with them is about three hours. You can go shorter than three hours because there's so much they've held in. But if you say, I'm sorry, you know, my time's up. You know, you need to go. My patient's waiting outside. You've lost them. They're not coming back. Right, and they, they would need time to sort of right. get out, but then to be safe enough to then leave your office, Absolutely, I would absolutely. You can't do traditional EMDR. Mm -hmm. You can't do traditional rapid resolution. You can't do traditional, traditional visual therapy. You can't do the traditional narrative. So I've had to modify everything I've learned in order to be able to reach out to them. So I modified it. For example, rapid, rapid resolution therapy, which is like a visual hypnosis kind of therapy, I call it the chakra rapid resolution chakra therapy. So I put them into deep relaxation, and I literally do work that I've never in my, done before in my life, but I had to do it because that's what works. So ultimately, when we're looking at our patients and we're saying we need to do evidence-based work, I say, yeah, sure, let's do evidence-based work. I'm all for it, but what do I do with this patient who's not gonna respond to it? Yeah. You know, I can't just say, hey, by the way, this is my technique, I'm gonna use it because I know it's backed by serious scientific research. Can't, You're, you have to heal your patients, right? That's what we are sworn to do. So I modify a lot of those techniques, and now I, my patients, within about four sessions, I'm able to get them to speak, mm -hmm. I'm able to get them to, uh, re, to write, because mm -hmm. sometimes they will refuse to write, right. they're frightened to write. Um, I'm able to separate them from the trafficker without huge guilt. It's like this massive shame and guilt, because once they get better, once they realize they're victims, and they, by the way, they never think of themselves as right. victims. They think of themselves as just being the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So if we go there and say, I'm so sorry you're victimized by human trafficking and this guy is your pimp, she doesn't know, he's not my pimp. I'm doing this because I want to do it. And if he's my pimp, it's because I chose him to be my pimp. So how do individuals find their way to you if they're not seeing themselves as being trafficked? How Usually I'll get them from the FBI. Mm -hmm. I get them from the Homeland Security Department. I get them from the Sheriff's, the sheriff's Department. Okay. So the deputies in the Sheriff's Department will send them to me. Other survivors will send them to me. The non NGOs will mm -hmm. send them, yeah. 
Um, so how so can I get the, them from a variety of different? Sources. So how can the average person recognize whether or not someone's being trafficked when the person themselves doesn't necessarily recognize it? Absolutely. So you know, in the statistics we have in Indiana, for example, is like 159 cases were reported last year. In my clinic alone, I had six cases in two months that I identified. So think about it, if, I, if someone is not trained, just like I wasn't years ago, I had to train myself. If someone's not trained, as a psychologist, we'll miss all the signs. So this is what you're looking for. You're going to be looking for people with extra phones, someone whose hygiene is questionable, someone who's got problems of running away from home several times. So within 48 hours of a kid being picked up by uh, running away, one in five to six children is picked up by a trafficker. That is the high statistic we have. You know, yeah. We have 458,000 missing children in the country, right? But NICMEC, which is a national missing exploited children, they have identified about 459,000 children, I think, as of last year. But when they did the Super Bowl, and during the Super Bowl, they rescued children. They were able to identify only 10% from the missing children's database. Wow. 90% they didn't even know were missing. Wow. That's huge. That's huge. It's huge. So, so people who are being trafficked don't necessarily recognize it. It's very hard for us to recognize that people yes. are being trafficked. Yes. What does someone who has been trafficked, if they get out of the situation, what is it that they can do or what seems to help them to rebuild their lives? So what really helps them is jobs. Mm. So one of the biggest things I've got from survivors, the biggest complaints we have from survivors, because I host a conference every year on human trafficking, is because the very first conference we had in 2014, we had eight survivors there, and all eight of them had said, please give us jobs. Don't just tell us you're going to get us out of this life. They call it the life. They said, don't get us out of the life. Give us jobs. Because if we have jobs, we won't go back. Yeah. But if I can't pay my rent, I can't put food on the table, you know, I can't buy a small toy for my grandchild, I can't do all of that. How do you want me to survive? At least my pimp, sorry, you know, I use the word, that's what they call him. At least my pimp gives me the money that I can, you know, survive. I can send money home if I have to. Mm -hmm. So the way to identify um, these victims in a clinic setting, ask them three questions. Just three, if you can ask these three questions, you can actually identify victims. One, who's in charge of your money? Who's in charge of your money? If you're an adult, right? Who's in charge of your money? If you're in a domestic violence condition for a situation, maybe your spouse is in charge of your money or the guy who's your boyfriend. So then you want to ask more questions. Has he made you sleep with other men? Simple questions, right? Because one question leads to the next question leads to the third. So just the classic interviewing technique that we're really well trained to do. And then the second question you always want to ask is, have you been made to do something you didn't want to do? Hmm. Have you had to do something you didn't want to do? It could be, yeah, I didn't want to go to the mall, so I, but I had to go to the mall. Anything else that caused you shame or made mm -hmm. you feel bad about yourself, about your body. Mm -hmm. So you can ask questions that lead to more deeper questions. And it's like the funnel approach in interviewing that we do. We ask broad questions mm -hmm. and then we narrow it down. And the third question you can always ask, especially of a child abuse, child sexual abuse victim, did you ever feel bad about sleeping with this person? Usually it's a mother's boyfriend. Because 
the mother knows that you that she that you had sex with the boyfriend or the husband because in exchange she was able to pay rent that is human trafficking mm -hmm. that literally is human trafficking but we don't call it that yeah the mother trafficked the child right. in order to pay rent right for the other kids and herself right so clearly with with trafficking and certainly you're talking a lot about sex trafficking the inability to provide basic Things. Absolutely, it's the financial motivator it's, it's all financial. in many ways. I mean, yes. the, obviously, the person, one person's benefiting financially, Absolutely. and one person's barely surviving. Absolutely, but that's part of what's happening. Absolutely. I was the first question you asked said you should ask is who's controlling the money. I suspect that's also really relevant for people who are being labor trafficked as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And are there things to look out for for people who are being labor trafficked that might be different from so sex trafficking? So labor trafficking, trafficking has a very different dynamic than sex trafficking. We don't see many in the clinical setting for labor trafficking, right? Because labor trafficking tends to be domestic servitude. Mm -hmm. So in domestic servitude, for example, they'll have small children who are sent by their parents to work in your house in exchange for all the income that she makes going back to the family. Mm -hmm. So in certain, certain situations, for example, with labor trafficking, usually uh, with organ harvesting, for me that's like really big because that's one of the biggest forms of labor trafficking. What happens with organ harvesting is in order to go from one country, for example, to come to, from Mexico to the US, right? Think about labor trafficking when you think about that. I know we focus on sex trafficking a lot, but that's with the minors. But with the older people, the older adults, labor trafficking would be where they take an organ in exchange for safe passage of your family. So for example, a kidney, if I don't know any of you have families with kidney failure, but with a kidney that's donated, there is a cost to it. So if you give me your kidney, I will allow your, your wife and child, one child, to come across the border. You have to give me something else in order for your other child to come across the border. And that child becomes the unaccompanied minors. So between January and June, we had 56,000 children unaccompanied in the border. In May alone, we had 11,500 children who were unaccompanied. So this is a massive, massive human trafficking racket. The proportions, I can't even explain to you how, how, seriously, uh, in, how seriously they impact families within this country as well. Mm -hmm. Because think about these kids are going to school with your kids. These kids are intermingling with your kids. They're then being hired by traffickers to then say, hey, go to the school and get these other kids to upload pictures of themselves. Yeah. So labor and sex trafficking then gets intertwined. So it's a very fine line between the two and often they go together. Labor and sex trafficking very frequently go hand in hand. So these are things we sort of tell people to think about because nowadays with the internet and the digital age, the biggest problem we are having now um, is our middle schoolers are, are being asked to upload pictures of themselves with nothing much on. And then they're saying, if you're my friend, you'll send me your picture. Before it was, if you're my friend, you'll wear the same color clothes I wear. Mm -hmm. You know, now it is, if you're my friend, you'll upload a picture of yourself doing X, Y, Z. 
So these kids do that just because they don't want to lose the friendship and because everybody else is doing it. So of right. course they're going to do it. And then after some time they say, I don't want to do it again. Oops, too late. I have your picture. I'm going to show it to your mother or your father or the whole school's going to know what you did. And from then on, they're trapped. Right. So there's a way that now media technology, technology. is really contributing to individuals um, in this country right. getting brought into maybe not actually performing sexual acts, but right. providing pornography right? Uh, because they're being manipulated. That's a, I hadn't realized that was happening as well. Yeah. It's horrifying to think about it's that. Horrifying. horrifying. What else do you think people should know about trafficking and how psychology can, have a, can help people in that space? So I think the biggest... Um, what I'd really like for everyone to know about human trafficking is that it's here. It's happening here. It's happening among us. Uh, it happens in meetings. I host a conference, like I said, on human trafficking. I had somebody come in 2014, my 2014, my first conference, and the guy had an NGO that, of volunteers. You know how you have uh, nonprofit organizations, and they're like, Let's, you need to volunteer. Why don't you volunteer in this organization? Or they'll say, you know, we are a modeling agency. You know, you have a pretty daughter, or you're pretty yourself, or good-looking yourself. They say, hey, would you like to model? And then they'll take your picture, and they'll say they're going to model you. That picture, your face, goes on somebody else's body. Or they'll make you say, do certain poses, and they'll put that, and they can digitally change you so that you are actually performing an act. And then they'll send that picture back to you, the video back to you. Mm -hmm and say, if you don't do what I tell you, or you don't service so-and-so person, I'm going to send this to whoever you're married to. And imagine you're married, you have children, you have a family, and you just say, OK, I want to make some extra money. I want to do some modeling. I work in a retail store. That's where they go, the malls. The malls, the schools, things that we think, the playgrounds. We think these are safe places. And they're generally safe if you're just alert to the signs. So it seems that one of the, the challenges these days is that it's really, we have much less control over how our image is projected. Correct. And that that can be used in manipulative ways that Absolutely. Uh, were not present 20 years ago. So I would imagine that in the field of trafficking, particularly around sex trafficking, and labor trafficking, the, the technology that is being employed. Right. Law enforcement agencies have all sorts of new challenges in order to keep up with that. And in labor trafficking, usually the biggest problem we have is people come from other countries to safer countries, what they think is safer countries, for a better opportunity. You come for a better life for your children, unless you're a refugee. So there's two types of refugees, right? One of the refugees who come to the country because they're escaping political uh, conflict. They're, they're, they're political. Um, refugees. The other kind of refugees are those who are escaping poverty and they want to come for a better life. So there's war conflict and politics and then there is a need for economics. They're both economically uh, challenging aspects. So when they come to this country or to any other country that is doing better or is considered safer, quote unquote safer than their country, 
then what happens is they become at risk for labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes it's a job, it's a promise of a job. They'll say, you right. know what, you, you come there, or you'll have a job waiting for you, uh, you just have to turn in your papers. So the biggest aspect of a labor trafficking and sex trafficking is they'll take your papers from you. Right. We'll keep your papers because we need to turn this over to the authorities and we can, we can convince them you know, we can convince them that you're a good candidate for this job. So I need all your papers. Of course you're gonna give your papers because you want to get that job. Or you wanna be allowed in a new country. Once you arrive in the new country, you'll never get your papers back. So you have no papers, you have no identification. Mm -hmm. You're basically, even though you may have come in legally at some level, you still have nothing. Mm -hmm. So that is a challenge between legal and illegal immigration too for us because they have lost their papers because those papers get confiscated. And that's a big problem with them. What kinds of challenges or, or where would you hope that psychologists and, and people who are interested in psychology, how could they use this information in, the, in their local communities? Really raising awareness. So what I do a lot, a lot of my work when I, I go talk in churches, you know, I talk about psychological trauma, I talk about identification, I talk about child development, I talk about adolescent development. So I have a whole curriculum I've developed. It's called the IACT program. So we've now got accredited as the first program that's been accredited globally. And I've developed this program because we have 10 modules covering all the way from infancy, labor, sex trafficking, all the, because people don't talk much about labor trafficking. So thank you so much for bringing it up again and again, because it's so important. And labor trafficking, just remember, is larger, larger and more worldwide than what we experience in the US as sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So keep that in mind. Um, so that's one thing I really want to convey. But as psychologists, we can actually teach about child development, we can teach about the human brain, we can teach about the neuropsychological substrates of trauma, uh, we can teach about how to treat trauma. There's mm -hmm. so much rehab. So I'm building a village um, for human trafficking victims mm -hmm. and we're building it in Indiana and we have a whole restorative treatment, trauma-informed, trauma-based, evidence-based and non-evidence-based treatment where we are actually going to be having 100 children and we're, we're trying to raise $26 million, just so you know. So we're trying to raise all that money so we could build the very first uh, human trafficking safe village that is actually built by psychologists, run by psychologists and mental health professionals. And the vets are going to be providing us the security. Mm. So we are, we, are, we are rehabilitating the vets we are rehabilitating the children mm -hmm. and rehabilitating the youth and the mothers with children. Mm -hmm. So it's a very comprehensive program. Sounds like a really important vision for well, what you could do to benefit people who have been I'm trafficked. That's yeah, really hoping. impressive. Thank you. Well, I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. Thanks. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is APA's Speaking of Psychology podcast. If you have enjoyed the podcast or have any comments or ideas you want to share, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. You can find this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also visit our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org and listen to other episodes there as well. 
Again, I'm Dr. Lynn Bufka with the American Psychological Association. Thank you, everybody.